0: Swimming under the full moon, the weird will and the creature from the Black Lagoon. Dracula, what do you think of my new smash? Whatever happened to the monster man? And it's a poolside smash. Why, hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub and welcome to another episode of Titan Up The Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As you may have been clued into by the different opening music, today we have a very special episode of Tighten Up the Defense. You see, as my good-for-many-things brother Cory was returning from his travels abroad, he was approached in the airport by a mysterious stranger who shoved a oddly-shaped object into his hand. He noticed that it was a conch shell, and, well, one thing led to another, and wouldn't you know it, Cory is now the ruler of Atlantis, and he's kind of stuck sitting on the throne there until he can find an appropriate region. So, I'm in a bit of a pickle, because I am left without a co-host for this episode. And I wasn't exactly sure what I should do, but then I looked at the calendar, and hey, it's the first week of March, and everyone knows that the first Wednesday of March is International Aquatic Teen Appreciation Day. Hooray! So, in honor of that very special holiday, which I certainly didn't just make up because I realized I had misremembered Cory's travel schedule, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna take a look at the debut issues of three of our favorite aquatic teens, and we're gonna talk about them a little bit. So, hang those puka shell necklaces from your aquatic teen appreciation day tree, and Nail that wreath of kelp to your door, because Aquatic Teen Appreciation Day is about to begin. The first Aquatic Teen we're going to talk about today is the one that we've covered the least on this show. And by the least, I mean not at all. But that being said, she might sound somewhat familiar nonetheless. She is arrogant. She is beautiful. She is quick to anger. That's right, she is Namorita. I was first introduced to Namorita from a title that she was in called The New Warriors. Their tagline was, appropriately enough, Heroes for the 90s, and Were They Ever. It was a title that I actually liked a lot when it was coming out, and Namorita was a big part of that. She is the daughter of Namora, who is Namor's cousin, which I think makes her Namor's second cousin, but honestly I'm a little iffy on that. And then later on she was a clone, and then later on she turned blue and started wearing battle armor, because, like I said, heroes for the 90s. But at her core, she's a strong, independent, assertive young hero. Let's take a look at the issue where she made her first appearance. Submariner, number 50, June 1972. Who am I? Written by Bill Everett. Drotted by Bill Everett, Inked by Bill Everett, Lettered by John Costa, and Edited by Stan Lee. Featuring the Aquatic Teen debut of Namorita! Hooray! Namor is wandering around the streets of New Orleans in a confused haze, which doesn't exactly set him apart from the rest of the crowd. In fact, I think Wander the Streets in a Confused Haze is one of the top recommendations from the Tourism Bureau of Louisiana's Things to Do in New Orleans brochure. But the avenging son of Atlantis has different reasons for his stupor than your average tourist, for he is suffering from amnesia. Oh, no! Wait a minute. I thought this issue came out in June. Doesn't Namor only lose his memory in months that contain the letter R? No, wait. I'm thinking of the best months for eating oysters. For the Submariner's memory lapses, there's that mnemonic device. Uh, Amnesia hath Namor in September, April, June, and November. The rest of the time his mind is clear and a surface dwellers should tremble in fear. Imperious Rex. Okay, so yeah, that checks out. June makes sense. Anyway, some lady named Cindy tells him tearfully that he should go back to the ocean because that's where he belongs. It's a real Harry and the Hendersons moment. Namor is like, "'What are you talking about, lady? "'I'm just a regular old, everyday, surface-dwelling fool, "'wandering the streets of the city in a green speedo, "'showing off my rad abs. "'If I had pants, I'd put them on one leg at a time, "'but very carefully so as not to snag them on those tiny wings "'that sprout out of my ankles, just like everybody else. "'I'm a regular guy!' Despite these thoroughly convincing protestations of his normality,' Our hero finds himself compelled to heed Cindy's advice. He goes to a nearby pier and jumps into the water. Instead of drowning as he half expected he might, the addled Atlantean is surprised to note that he can breathe underwater, and he starts to feel a little bit better. He's pissed off at all the pollution that is around and starts to swim for deeper, cleaner waters, when he notices a submerged body tangled up in some seaweed. At first, he figures it's just another corpse but then he notices that it seems to be still alive. Weird. Against his initial impulses to angrily storm off, our perplexed protagonist begrudgingly undertakes a rescue mission and drags the apparent non-corpse to the shore. As he drags the not-quite-so-dead-after-all body up onto the beach, the Prince of Abslantis thinks to himself, Why am I rescuing this stupid human? I see that it's a pretty lady. Is that it? Nah." Looks like it's a teenager, and I am definitely not into that shit. It's probably just that I don't want this body decomposing and stinking up the ocean. Still, weird that I seem to give a crap. Oh well, guess I'll do some mouth-to-mouth. As soon as Namor attempts to resuscitate the insensate adolescent, she pops up and is like, Get the fuck off me, you creepy old perv! and socks him in the jaw. Hooray! Then she runs off and jumps back into the ocean and swims away the lost scion of Atlantis doesn't react particularly well to being told off, although whether he takes greater umbrage at the pervert part or the old part is anybody's guess. After shouting, Fine, go ahead and kill yourself! See if I care! Spoiler, I don't! The absent-minded Atlantean monarch dives into the water and swims to Antarctica. Hooray! He dives under the ice shelf and finds himself inexplicably drawn to a hidden cave. No sooner does the spelunking submariner venture into the cave's mouth than he is attacked by a giant lobster man. The startled super swimmer defends himself by forcing the lobster man's head into its own giant claw. Hooray! Before Namor has the chance to even ask his adversary the age-old question, Why are you crushing yourself in your own giant lobster claw? Why are you crushing yourself in your own giant lobster claw? The tussle is interrupted by the arrival of the confounded crustacean's boss, an enormous non-anthropomorphic talking crab. Hooray! The giant talking crab introduces himself. Sort of. He says, If I had a name, it might be Salamar the Sustainer. Well, that is an awfully specific hypothetical, Mr. Talking Crab. The... Possibly Salomar Crab continues that he has set up shop down here in the ruins of Atlantis and is stoked to see Namor because he can use him to repopulate this once great empire. Damn, even talking crabs are horny for Namor. Namor responds that he is like super flattered, but he's got this whole amnesia thing going on and he's really just not that into crustaceans. But if he was... The nebulously monikered sea creature cuts him off and is like, No, 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 you've got me all wrong. Look, maybe this will clear things up. Then he has two of his lobstery pals wheel out a glass coffin that has a dead blue lady in it. The potentially Salomar crab continues, This is your dead cousin, Namora. It is she who will help you repopulate the city. Understandably, Namor is pretty unnerved by this development. He responds, You want me to have sex with my dead cousin? Gross! I mean, there are so many problems with that. Sure, the fact that the first part of her name is Namor is kind of a turn-on, but 1. She is my cousin, and B. She is dead. Okay, so maybe just the two problems, but those are pretty big problems. The crab is like, Okay, so maybe I didn't explain this right. I don't want you to sleep with your dead cousin. You're right, that would be super creepy. I want you to sleep with your dead cousin's teenage daughter. She doesn't know about this plan, but she's out looking for you. Aha! Also, gross! Namor is like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Nothing a few gallons of drawn butter and a plastic bib wouldn't fix. I'll tell you that much. The creepy crab counters, Well, if looking at the corpse of your beloved cousin doesn't put you in the mood to sleep with your teenage second cousin, maybe looking at a corpse that has been festering in an undersea oil pit will do the trick. Then he has his guards drag out a rotting corpse from a nearby oil pit. Man, crabs are into some nasty shit. I hope I never have to see a teenage crab's browser history. The not-exactly-anonymous arthropod goes on, "'This is the dead body of your old enemy, Prince Barah. "'Remember what a dick he was? "'He was always trying to conquer Atlantis and be a tyrant and stuff. "'We found him a little while ago "'and tried to get him to help us repopulate the city, "'only he didn't want to either, "'so we shoved him in an oil pit and now he's dead as heck. "'Now are you horny or what?' "'Enraged, the savage submariner replies, "'Oh, I'm horny, all right. "'Horny for punches!' Okay, he technically doesn't say that, but he should have. Because he is. And also that is an amazing catchphrase. He starts punching the shit out of all the crab guys. Hooray! He takes out the hench lobsters no problem, but when he goes to clobber maybe Salomar, the cagey crab monster uses some kind of weird electronic ray on him. Huh. Namor pretends for a second that he's gonna surrender. But then he charges and jumps on his opponent's back and starts using his sea strength and limbs to rip the shell apart! Brutal! Also, hooray! When the crab's interior is exposed, instead of that gross green stuff that old people try to tell you is the best part of the crab, but is decidedly not the best part of the crab, Namor instead finds a speaker and a remote control device. So it turns out that the crab creature, who may or may not be Salamar, is in fact not Salomar. Which, Maybe it's why he technically never said his name was Salomar, I think. I heard somewhere that if you ask a crab if his name is Salomar, he has to tell you the truth. Otherwise, it's entrapment. No, it turns out that the giant crab was just a giant crab who was being remote-controlled by... Prince Bira, who is not actually dead after all. The feedback from the control device being destroyed forced the miscreant would-be monarch from his nearby hidey-hole. Birat explains that he was just pretending to be a crab because, um, just because, I guess. Fair enough. The crab cosplaying Crumbum orders his hench lobsters to drag out Namora's daughter Namorita, who has just returned from searching for Namor. It turns out that Namorita is the blonde teenager who thought the Submariner was creeping on her at the beginning of the book. You don't say. Seeing his second cousin again finally jogs Namor's ailing memory. He remembers that when she was a baby, they used to call her Nita. He also remembers what a dillweed bureau was. So he goes ahead and attacks the dillweed in question. Or is about to at any rate, because as our hero leaps at the dillweed, a blue lady steps out from behind some kelp or something and points an underwater ray gun at him. Now that his memory is back, Namor recognizes the lady as Lyra, the Princess of Lemuria. He isn't exactly stoked to see her, and not just because of the ray gun. Turns out Lyra murdered Namor's fiancé and helped murder his dad. She tries to add regicide to her already impressive murderous resume, but when she fires the weapon, Namor leaps out of the way. Turns out he's still sore about the whole killing his loved ones thing, and Nemorita brings up the fact that she's pretty sure Lyra is the one who murdered her mom as well. So together, the two second cousins beat up the lobster guys, and Bira and Lyra. Hooray! During the scuffle, Lyra falls into the oil pit the crustaceans hauled that corpse out of. Despite the fact that the evil Blue Empress was a murdery jerk, Nemorita doesn't feel great about leaving her to die, but Namor assures her that it is no less than she deserves. So... The two of them swim off as Bira shakes his fist and swears vengeance on the recently reunited family members. So, guys, if any time in the next couple of months a giant talking crawfish tries to convince you to come back to his place, maybe just keep swimming. And there you have the debut of Namorita. Pretty great. Bill Everett does a really nice job on this issue. It strikes a really weird tone where there's all of the goofiness that you would associate with a Silver Age issue, but there's a legit air of menace about what is happening that is a really weird tonal mix that is something that I think you get a lot more in Golden Age comics. And in my opinion, it really works. Also, his art is freaking beautiful in this. When I think of Bill Everett's art, I usually think of the really early Submariner stuff from the 40s and 50s. But his style really grew and evolved over the years. And I would put this book right up there with the best of the Bronze Age stuff that was coming out at the time. So, pretty neat. Now, let's move on to the debut of a hero who needs no introduction. So, I'm not going to give him one. Adventure Comics, number 269, February, 1960. We start off with a Crypto the Superdog story. No aquatic teens yet, but I do like me some Crypto pretty good. Crypto's Mean Master Written by Jerry Siegel Drotted by George Papp Inked by George Papp Edited by Mort Weisinger. Crypto is out goofing around and fucking with the Navy by blowing their missiles off course during some target practice. Nice. Superboy gets wind of his dog's shenanigans and is real pissed off and tells him to go stay on the moon for a week and think about what a bad dog he is. Which is fucking berserk. Seriously, even if there was food on the moon, which I'm pretty sure there isn't, Isolating your pet from all social contact for seven days is ridiculously harsh. Fuck you, Superboy. Crypto more or less agrees with my assessment of the situation and is like, the hell with that. The moon sucks. Fuck the moon. I'm gonna go fly around space and see if I can find a cool planet that isn't full of lame narcs like Superboy. Good for you, Crypto. After bopping around for a while and having some space hijinks, the Kryptonian canine eventually winds up on a technologically advanced planet. He runs into a super-powered flying kid named Solar Boy. Solar Boy asks if he wants to be friends and Crypto is like, Sure! Why not? You seem cool. Careful, Crypto. Super Boy seemed cool at first, too. Look how that turned out. Solar Boy shows his new dog buddy a fancy machine that can make any food you think of appear. So. The superdog makes a giant hot dog appear and eats it. Then Solar Boy gives him a pill, which seems like it's going to be some kind of a thing, but nope, it's just a super tasty pill that space folks like to eat for dessert. But Superboy never shares his pills with his friends. What a jerk. Then Crypto decides to cut loose by fucking with a local weather control station. The ecosystem goes all screwy for a minute and the space cops get all pissed off. Crypto's worried that his new pal's going to yell at him but Solar Boy tells the cops to chill the fuck out. Nice. Later that evening, back at Solar Boy's pad, Crypto's new pill-popping pal climbs into the fancy phone booth-looking science box that gives him his powers. He explains that he has to use it every day or he'd just be a regular kid. There's a slightly smaller box next to it, and Solar Boy says that if Crypto hops on in there, he'll get even more super than he already is. That sounds like a pretty sweet deal to Crypto, So in he hops. Uh Uh-oh. Turns out that Solar Boy is a total asshole. See, a couple years ago he came to Earth and tried to steal some gorillas or something, and Superboy and Crypto told him to knock it off. He's been holding a grudge ever since. Crypto doesn't remember the incident, although whether that's because he's a dog or those are just some really good space pills is anybody's guess. Anyway, the booth Crypto is in takes away his superpowers for a day, just as the larger booth grants them to Solar Boy. The next day, Solar Boy starts fucking with Crypto. First he asks him if he wants a bone. Then he grinds a whole pile of bones to dust in front of him and doesn't let him have any. Then he tells the confused quadruped to jump through a hoop, only the hoop has plexiglass over the opening and Crypto bumps his head. Then he asks Crypto if he wants to chase a cat, and when he says yes, He throws him in a cage with like a 15-foot fire-breathing cat monster. Then he makes Crypto cry by showing him old pictures that he took of Crypto and Superboy having fun together and tells the heartbroken puppy that he'll never see his pal again. What an asshole. Plus he's not even sharing his pills anymore. The next day, after forcing Crypto back into the power-draining booth, Solar Boy continues to fuck with him. He shoots him up into space on a rocket ship without any food in it and leaves him there all day which, to be fair, is kind of what Superboy was going to do when he tried to send him to the moon for a week. But it's still a total dick move. That night, Crypto notices that a robot butler is cleaning the science booths. The crafty canine uses his tail to flip a switch on the device that controls the robot, which causes the robot to goof up and break some of the machinery in Solar Boy's fancy power chambers. The next day, when Solar Boy shoves him in the booth and turns the machine on, the rays have no effect. Crypto plays along for a while, then reveals that he has his superpowers back, and Solar Boy is just a regular kid. It also turns out that Solar Boy is an orphan, and that his dad built him the booth before he died. For a second it seems like that information is revealed to create some pathos for the kid, but nah. It's just to make it so that when Crypto smashes the shit out of the device that was the dying father's gift to his only son, we know that there is no one alive who knows how to repair it and that Solar Boy will be forever trapped in his mediocre life after once having tasted greatness. Hooray! After smashing the booth, Crypto smacks the depowered orphan around a bit and pushes him down in the mud. Hooray! Then he flies back to the moon where he runs into Superboy, who apologizes for being such a dick. Crypto licks his face and promises to never run away again. Ah. I mean, I still think Superboy was an asshole, but... Aww. Then we get a Green Arrow and Speedy story. Once again, no aquatic teens in this one. I sure hope this is the right comic. The Comic Book Archer Written by Robert Bernstein Drotted by Lee Elias Inked by Lee Elias Edited by Mort Weisinger Speedy's all stoked because he and Green Arrow have been invited to the office of a comic book publisher to pose for some pictures for a PSA about the dangers of juvenile delinquency. Boy, those pictures are going to be pretty ironic in a few years during the Denny O'Neill-Neil Adams run. Sure hope Ollie saved the negatives. The two archers get shown around the building and told about the comic book publishing process. After pointing out how hard-working and dedicated comic book creators are, The editor-in-chief, Mr. Sloan, informs his guest that in addition to comic book publishing, his other true passion is recreational dairy farming, and setting up exhibits at the big dairy convention that is scheduled for the next day. Well, that seems like an irrelevant piece of information that certainly will not be used as a plot point later in the story. Then we meet this story's real hero, a comic book writer who has written a story about a crime-fighting archer. Bill Nixon shows his story about a character called the Wizard Archer to his boss, Mr. Sloan. Sloan is unimpressed. He says the story is stupid and unrealistic. Because what readers of 1960 comic books are looking for in their superhero comics is stark realism. Sloan takes offense at the fact that the fictional Archer, which is to say the fictional fictional Archer, uses a needle arrow to sew up the side of a giant balloon, shoots an arrow that knocks pool balls into the head of four billiard-playing criminals, and rescues some miners using a drill arrow. Sloan finds these feats preposterous and refuses to buy the story. He's like, Hey, Green Arrow, take a look at this dumb shit this stupid idiot wrote. Let's laugh at him together, shall we? Green Arrow responds, No, we shall not. People who write comic books about crime-fighting archers are the hardest-working, most wonderful people in the world, and we should do everything in our power to support them. Tell you what, if me and Speedy do the tricks that this fine young man wrote in his story, will you purchase it? Sloan agrees. The next day, a blimp has a leak, so Green Arrow uses a needle arrow to sew up the side of the rip in the dirigible. Then some criminals are hiding in a planetarium, like they do, so our heroes use their arrows to knock the models of the planets into them, which is, I guess, kinda a little like the pool table thing. If you squint. The battling bowmen call Mr. Sloan and tell him about their exploits, and he says, Two out of three doesn't mean shit. Tell you what, why don't you boys come down to the Big Dairy Expo? I'm going to reiterate to Bill that I still don't like his dumb story, and I'd like you to be there with me when I belittle him. What do you say? There'll be cheese! Although they are sad that they were unable to help their artist friend, the two adventurers are unable to resist the siren song of free cheese. So they agree to go. When they arrive, Sloan is freaking the fuck out. He was in charge of making a building shaped like a giant wedge of Swiss cheese, but he forgot to put holes in it. Hey, I think we've all been there. Fortunately, our innovative archers, inspired as we all are by the comics they have read, get out their drill arrows and riddle the walls of the cheese-shaped novelty building with holes. Hooray! The day is saved and Sloan agrees to publish the story and praises Bill for his inspirational work. Wow. A comic book creator getting paid and credited for his work? And I thought those trick arrows were unrealistic. Finally, we have The Kid from Atlantis, written by Robert Bernstein, drotted by Ramona Fraiden, inked by Ramona Fraiden, and edited by Mort Weisinger. Featuring the aquatic teen debut of Aqualad! Hooray! Aquaman is out on patrol, swimming around the ocean with his buddies Topo the octopus and a swordfish and a shark that don't seem to have names. It's a pretty slow day for water-based crime, so when he spots a weird capsule drifting on the ocean's surface, he decides to check it out. Turns out that the weird capsule contains a sleeping boy who looks a great deal less like a young Tom Jones than he will a few years from now, but is wearing a familiar-looking blue speedo and a red shirt. Hooray! When the kid wakes up and sees the octopus, shark, and swordfish that are bobbing around outside his floating bed, he freaks the fuck out and tells Aquaman to get them away from him. Aquaman is like, Hey, calm down. I'm Aquaman, and these fish are my friends. In that they are forced to obey my telepathic commands, which is, of course, a perfectly reasonable way to define friendship. Despite the King of the Sea's attempt at reassurance, the Foundling refuses to be placated. He explains that he is terrified of fish, and has been his whole life. Reluctantly, Aquaman sends his finny friends away. Well, Aqualad, because, come on, the kid is Aqualad, hooray, expresses his gratitude for the fish-free environment, Aquaman notices that the boy has purple eyes, which answers some questions he had had. It turns out that the denizens of Atlantis are a bunch of assholes who are super into a weird version of deep-sea eugenics. If a baby is born with purple eyes, they assume that it will be a genetic throwback to the days before Atlanteans had evolved the ability to breathe underwater. Which makes sense, seeing as how all us surface-dwelling fools have purple eyes. That's just good science. Figuring that the surface world is the only place for such a child, the Atlantean scientists instituted the practice of jamming all their purple-peepered babies into capsules and firing them like torpedoes towards the nearest landmass. Kind of like Superman's parents did with him. You know, only if Krypton wasn't in any danger, but Jor-El thought Kal-El looked weird and might be a hassle. Man, Atlantis sucks. So the color of Aqualad's pretty eyes answers some of the Sea King's questions, but raises another. The ever-observant Aquaman is like, Hey, you're not a baby! Well spotted. Aqualad explains that when they were about to give him the baby Moses treatment, his parents noticed that he could breathe underwater just fine, so they let him stick around for a while. How nice of them. But then... They found out about his fear of fish. For a while, they figured he'd outgrow it, but as he got older, the fear just intensified. Also, both of his parents died in an accident five years ago. Because, with the exception of Wally West, just about every character in the DCU is either an orphan or their dad is a supervillain. Or both. Anyway, after his folks died, the other Atlanteans decided that Aqualad's fear of fish was just too much of a hassle, and they may as well shove him in one of those orphan torpedoes after all. Aquaman feels bad for the future greatest teen titan of all time, and is like, I am very good at swimming, and I'm a king, so I bet I'm great at therapy too. Why don't you come hang out with me for a day, and I bet I can cure your lifelong debilitating case of ichthyophobia. Sure, why not. The two aquatic aces head to the ocean floor, where Aquaman proves that he has his finger on the pulse of youth culture by bringing his new friend a hoop and a stick to play with. Hooray! Aqualad has an absolute blast rolling the hoop with the stick, because of course he does. What child wouldn't? It's a hoop with a fucking stick! After a few hours of hoop and stick-related frolicking, Aquaman is like, Hey kid! You know that hoop and stick you've been playing with? Aqualad is like, Hell yes I do, it's a hoop and a stick. Best several hours of my life. Aquaman responds, Why don't you take a closer look? Turns out that the hoop and stick were actually incredibly well-trained eels this whole time. Of course they were. Aquaman goes, See, fish are pretty great after all. Aqualad is a little shook, but agrees that if they can facilitate his hoop-and-stick playtime, he guesses eels can't be all bad. Aquaman continues to test his theory that the most effective child therapy is rooted in the foundation of betrayal by a trusted adult. He takes Aqualad out to play in a nearby water spout, only to reveal later that the geyser is being made by a whale's blowhole. Aqualad admits that that was a pretty good trick, and maybe whales aren't so bad after all. Also, blowhole is a funny word. Figuring that Aqualad has caught on to his bait and switch tactics, Aquaman is upfront about the fact that the next play session will involve sea creatures. He calls in Topo. Hooray! The king of the octopuses, probably, trolls the marine preteen around like a merry go round, and the formerly frightened foundling is delighted, admitting that his fear of fish is beginning to abate. The sea-strengthened Stripling decides to join Aquaman on his afternoon patrol of the sea. When he sees his new mentor command a school of pilot fish to guide a wayward freighter through a maze of jagged rocks, the young Atlantean outcast is finally convinced that fish are the greatest. Now that his fear has abated, it turns out that like his pal Aquaman, Aqualad too can telepathically command sea creatures. Neat! Now he too can begin to form lifelong friendships based on total mental subjugation. Hooray! Aqualad demonstrates his newfound powers by ordering a bunch of luminescent glowfish to form a glow-in-the-dark landing strip that allows a seaplane to make an emergency night landing. Once the passengers have been safely evacuated, Aquaman turns to his young companion and says, Well, I guess now that you're not scared of fish anymore, you can head back to live alone in the city, like a normal child. Goodbye! Aqualad is like, Maybe I could just live in a cave with you and sleep in a hammock and you could keep tricking me into doing things I don't want to do. How about that? I I gotta be honest, neither of these options sound great. The melancholy marine monarch is of the opinion that his new protege would be better off in Atlantis, and insists that he go. He watches with tears in his eyes as the greatest kid in the world swims towards the distant city gates. The next day, Aquaman is surprised at how much he misses his newly phobia-free friend. He absent-mindedly orders two nearby eels to form a hoop and a stick, which he mopily plays with. Man, if playing with a hoop and a stick doesn't cheer him up, what will? Why, the return of Aqualad, that's what! Aqualad swims up and reveals that he never returned to Atlantis after all. When Aquaman wasn't paying attention, the aquatic pre-adolescent dressed two swordfish up in his costume and sent them through the city gates in his stead. Because Aqualad is the fucking best. Also, pretty sweet gig for those swordfish. Wonder how long it'll take people in Atlantis to notice the difference. I bet if they can get their fins on a trench coat and fedora, they could continue that ruse indefinitely. Now I kind of want to read a comic that is just the continuing adventures of two swordfish dressed up as a human. Just them trying to go to R-rated movies and shit. Yeah, that'd be a pretty good read. Anyway... Aquaman is overjoyed to see his young friend, and is so proud to see how well he learned the lessons he taught him about the importance of deception, betrayal, and ordering fish to do your dirty work, that he decides immediately to adopt the feisty purple-eyed young Atlantean as his ward. Hooray! And there you have the first appearance of the greatest teen titan of all time, Aqualad. Pretty good stuff. It is kind of weird to me that on the cover, they call him Aqua Boy. Because he's not Aqua Boy. That's demeaning. He's Aqua Lad. Also, everybody acts like him being afraid of fish when he lives underwater is like this crazy thing. But you know what? I live on the land. And if I woke up from a nap and there were a fucking bear and a moose and a fucking tiger hanging out outside my bed... I would be pretty freaked out too. Matter of fact, if we were to make a list of land animals that I would not be at least a little bit freaked out to encounter in the wild, that list would be a blank piece of paper. So, how about you lay off Aqualad? Although the amount of time that he played with that hoop and stick combo without realizing that it was made of eels is bonkers. And kind of makes me wonder if Aquaman was using some, like, low-grade telepathy on him. Ooh, like the scene in The Lost Boys where Michael's eating rice, but then he looks closer and it's made out of maggots. And then Kiefer Sutherland tells him it's just rice and he looks again and it's rice, but when he looks at his noodles, then his noodles are made out of worms. Oh, man. That Kiefer Sutherland. And now we come to the final debut of an aquatic teen that we're going to cover today for Aquatic Teen Appreciation Day. We're going to take a look at the premiere of Tula, a.k.a. Aqua Girl. We've seen her a few times. She used to pal around with Aqualad a lot in the Bronze Age. Uh, They showed up in some backup features in the Teen Titans. And she showed up pretty recently attending the wedding and joining the gang on their underwater adventure to destroy Hive. But... The character really hasn't gotten as much play as I think she should have, which is a shame, because she's a neat character. She's one of several heroes who dies more or less just to raise the stakes in the Crisis on Infinite Earths, and she doesn't end up coming back for an extended run the way that The Flash and Supergirl did. So that's pretty much the end of Aquagirl, which is a bummer. But let's not dwell on that. Not on Aquatic Teen Appreciation Day. Let's instead think of happier times, like when Aquagirl first showed up and she and Aqualad ran away to become underwater burglar go-go dancers. Aquaman number 33, June 1967. Aqualad's Deep Sea Chick. Written by Bob Haney, drotted by Nick Carty, inked by Nick Carty, edited by George Cashton. Featuring the aquatic teen debut of Aquagirl. Hooray! Aquaman and Aqualad are riding around on their giant seahorses when a 747 crashes into the water right in front of them. The hydrated heroes get to work rescuing the passengers. Aquaman orders some sawfish to cut a hole in the side of the plane. I'm no marine biologist, but I'm pretty sure that's not how sawfish work. Okay, Never mind. I guess the riveted steel hull of an airplane is no match for cartilage and fishbone because the fish do in fact saw through the plane. Hooray! Aqualad leads the survivors to the surface and has them all hold hands in a circle and leads them in the singing of folk songs until the coast guard arrives. The newspaper reporters who show up to cover the rescue all make a fuss over Aquaman, but Aqualad feels kind of overlooked. No fair, all Aquaman did was tell a bunch of fish to mutilate themselves by bashing their heads against a plane. Aqualad sang a song! Later that day, back in Atlantis, it's more of the same. Mera, Baby, and the whole royal court fawn over Aquaman and tell him how smart and brave he is. Off in a corner of the palace, Aqualad mopes about how nobody ever congratulates him for bravely singing a song and not even being a little bit afraid of fish anymore. Suddenly, a stranger swoops in out of nowhere and smooches the startled superteen right on the mouth. And just who is this purveyor of unasked-for physical affection? Nighthawk? Jack Norris? Hawkeye? Speedy? Nope. Well, this sort of behavior would certainly be in any of their wheelhouses, the mysterious smooch-stealer in this issue turns out to be... Aqua Girl! Hooray! The affectionate aquatic adolescent tells Aqualad that he is handsome and wonderful. Well, we don't know a ton about her yet, but there is nothing wrong with Aqua Girl's eyesight. The undisputed greatest teen titan of all recognizes his admirer as Tula, a childhood friend who he hasn't seen in a long time. Aqualad thinks that Tula is awful pretty, and the two teens bond over their mutual attraction and the fact that they both feel unappreciated as of late. Tula suggests that maybe the two of them should leave Atlantis and go have some adventures on their own. Aqualad thinks that sounds like a swell idea. I don't know. What makes this aqua girl think she has what it takes to be a costumed adventurer? Oh, never mind. She just casually mentioned that she is an orphan. She's good. Tula changes into a two-piece gold-scale bathing suit, and Aqualad is impressed. He tells her that her new code name is going to be Aquachick. No, it's not. The duo of damp do-gooders head off to the throne room to tell Aquaman and Mera of their plans to leave Atlantis. Mera is like, Nope! But Aquaman steps in and says that if they really think they'd be happier living on their own, he's sad to see them go, but he's not going to stand in their way. Aqualad is a little bummed out that his adopted parents called his bluff like that, but Tula's pretty gung-ho about the idea of running away, so off they go. The two marine teens haven't been gone very long before they encounter an underwater dance club where all the revelers are thrill-seeking surface dwellers wearing scuba gear. Well, all right. This particular underwater dance club, because there were just so many of them back in 1967, is called Dr. Dorsal's Deep Sea Discotheque, because of course it is our heroes head inside and start dancing. The other partiers are super impressed because A, Aqualad and Tula are amazing dancers, and two, they are also the only people in the club who don't need to wear scuba gear, which also means they're probably the only people there who can actually hear the music, which kind of makes you wonder what the hell all those diving enthusiasts are doing down there in the first place. Fucking coastal teens. They're not forming scooter gangs so that they can fight giant disembodied ears with their transistor radios. They're putting on scuba suits and going to undersea raves. Okay, when I put it that way, being a coastal teen sounds pretty fucking rad. Curse my landlocked upbringing! The thrill-seeking teens aren't the only ones who are impressed with our pair of protagonists and their deep-sea dance moves. The club's proprietor, a bearded beatnik named Dr. Dorsal, approaches Garth and Tula and asks them if they want to work for him as go-go dancers. Naturally, they accept. Hooray! The newly employed runaways dance the afternoon away, but after a few hours, the patrons' oxygen tanks start to run out and the party winds down. After the last club-goer departs, Dr. Dorsal walks up to them and removes his diving gear. What? It appears that the good doctor is able to breathe underwater as well. He just wears the gear because it makes his customers feel more comfortable being around him. Wait, if he hides the fact that he breathes water so as not to spook people, then why would he hire people who breathe underwater to dance in his club as an attraction? Just because. Uh, Okay, but how does he breathe underwater? Oh, he's from another dimension. Of course. For a second there, I almost forgot this was a Bob Haney comic. And just in case I was in any danger of again forgetting who penned this tale, Dr. Dorsal takes our heroes into the secret lab that is hidden behind his subaquatic jukebox and shows them his pet, a two-headed giant eel that is also from another dimension. The guileless guild go-go dancers take a closer look at the curious creature and, that's right, it hypnotizes them. Okay, so two-headed extradimensional eels go on the avoid eye contact with list. Right after albino baboons, Jericho, and everyone else. Got it. Turns out, Dr. Dorsal is a real asshole. He hypnotizes Garth and Tula into committing crimes for him. The amphibious adolescents, in turn, use their natural charisma to trick the scuba-diving coastal ravers into following suit. The gang's first target is the Seaside Circus. Naturally. Why does anyone in the DCU even go to circuses anymore? You might as well just put your wallet and jewels in a pillowcase and fling it at a robber's face. Either way, you're going to lose all your money and probably get murdered, but at least this way you wouldn't have to see any clowns. Anyway, Aqualad steals a trick diving horse and the other teens rob everyone in the audience. Aqua Girl assures her new pals that it's just a prank and that later they'll give back all the money. But here's the thing. It isn't, and they won't. Garth and Tula struggle to overcome Dorsal's mesmeric thrall, but the dimensionally displaced douchebag hits them with another double dose of E.L.I. contact. The crime spree continues as the hypnotized H2O breathers and their hapless dupes go on to rob a fancy yacht club. After nabbing a fistful of jewels and a yachting trophy, the fledgling fugitives make a speedy getaway. But as their coastal cohort zooms off on their speedboats, the Coast Guard helicopter manages to snap some photos of Garth and Tula. The next day, the authorities contact Aquaman and give him the sad news that his former protege and his new girlfriend appear to have turned to a life of crime. The morose monarch wonders where he went wrong. Should he have given his young friend more praise for singing that song the other day? Yes. Yes, he should have. A contrite King of the Seas requests that the Coast Guard let him handle this one on his own. They acquiesce. Soon thereafter, Tula and Garth are hanging out on a secluded beach with their new teen buddies, talking about how rad their new hobby of supposedly catch-and-release burglary is, when they are approached by a mysterious beachcomber with a giant bushy beard. Despite the fact that this is not at all suspicious, the teens are suspicious of the alleged shell collector. He wins their trust by informing them that he has just heard that a Coast Guard unit is closing in on this location with the intent of capturing the cadre of callow crime committers. Sure enough, no sooner has this totally innocuous beachcomber who just happens to have most of his face covered with a floppy straw hat and a bushy beard finished speaking than the ocean cops arrive on the scene. Grateful for the assistance that the not-at-all-suspicious stranger has provided, Garth invites the shell picker to grab one of the spare scuba tanks they brought along with them and join the deep-sea delinquents as they flee to their secret underwater headquarters. When they arrive at their subaquatic discotheque base, the diabolical Dr. Dorsal is pleased at their new recruit, correctly pointing out that the perfectly normal beachcomber will be useful on their upcoming capers on account of he is so unsuspicious that no one would think to question him. Good call! But a few minutes later, Dorsal spots the old timer poking around in his hidden lab and starts to get suspicious after all. What? Of a harmless old shell collector who continues to wear his floppy hat as he walks around looking for shells in the secret lab inside of an underwater disco? I mean, it's not like he's a creepy old mysterious balloon vendor who just appeared out of nowhere. Which would be equally unsuspicious. The inexplicably distrustful doctor gives his hypnotized henchmen their next assignment. They are to break into the nearby government atomic research facility. Some of the scuba-diving teens balk at this idea, but a still spellbound aqualad strong-arms his associates into compliance. After giving his orders, Dorsal notices that the old shell-collector is sneaking off and follows him. Turns out the apparently harmless old man was spying on them after all. No way! The perhaps-not-entirely-unsuspicious-after-all beachcomber drops a note into a message buoy. I bet he's a spy for a rival undersea discotheque for teenage scuba-slash-dance enthusiasts. Dr. Dorsal visits the buoy after the note is deposited and retrieves the missive. The extra-dimensional entrepreneur finds the letter's contents to be most illuminating. After ripping a piece off the bottom, Dorsal shares the remainder of the message with Tula and Garth. The marine teens are outraged by their purported pal's duplicity and listen carefully to their employer's instruction as to how to dispose of the double-crossing drifter. When the time comes to begin their assault on the subaqueous government facility, Garth and Tula insist that the prospector-looking double-agent accompany them. The base's first line of defense is Aqualad's greatest foe, an electrified net. Oh no! Garth has prepared for even this eventuality. He tosses a magnetic sponge, which I'm sure is totally a thing, at the net, shorting it out. Hooray? I mean, I get that he's doing bad shit, but I I still want the kid to be successful. And that's by far the most effective disposal of an electrified net that I've ever seen an aquatic hero manage. So, a heavily qualified hooray, but a hooray nonetheless. Once the teens make it past the net, they encounter the next line of defense, a seemingly impenetrable field of explosive mines. Fortunately, the resourceful sea teens have a plan for this obstacle as well. Aqua Girl grabs the old shell collector and shoves him into the nearest mine. Oh, shit! The bomb explodes and the beachcomber's lifeless body drifts to the ocean floor. What's worse, the explosion knocked the mask off of the derelict, and reveals that he was no mere spy from a rival subaquatic dance club after all. It was Aquaman the whole time. Alerted to the invasion by the noise of the detonation, a horde of navy divers emerge from the base and descend on the deep-sea delinquents, arresting the misguided coastal teens. But... Garth and Tula barely notice them, for the shock of realizing that they were complicit in the death of their beloved Aquaman has snapped Dr. Dorsal's hypnotic spell. Aqualad plucks the projectile from a spear gun out of the water as it whizzes past him, and the enraged Atlantean adolescents swim back to Dorsal's discotheque, with revenge on their minds. When they arrive at the lab and confront the duplicitous doctor, he initially denies knowing that the shell-seeking spy was actually Aquaman, But Tula finds the scrap of paper that the criminal club owner tore off the note and sees that it is Aquaman's signature. Also, Aquaman apparently signs his name in all capital block letters, which is kind of weird. But hey, I guess when you're a monarch, nobody's going to question your penmanship. Dorsal makes a desperate last-ditch effort to re-hypnotize the irate teens, but Aqualad stabs the two-headed eel with his newly acquired spear, apparently killing at least one of the heads. And everybody knows that a one-headed eel can't hypnotize shit. Now would be ridiculous. Alcolad goes to stab Dr. Dorsal as well, figuring that since he just inadvertently committed regicide, he might as well add what would likely be considered justified manslaughter to the list of charges against him. But Dorsal flees through a weird portal that opens up, and when Garth tries to stab after him, the spear is bent against the suddenly closed portal. Aqualad expresses his frustration and confusion by this turn of events, but a familiar voice informs him that of course his spear couldn't penetrate the mystic gateway. It was a dimensional warp that is only enterable by people from Dorsal's dimension. Obviously. Garth turns and is delighted to find that the person shaming him for his ignorance about dimensional warps is none other than Aquaman, who it turns out is not so dead after all. And just how did the King of Atlantis survive the apparently fatal explosion? Sea strength and skin, baby! Hooray! Girl apologizes for kinda sorta almost killing Aquaman, but he's like, Don't worry about it. I saw that two-headed extra-dimensional eel and everybody knows how hypnotic they are. No harm, no foul. Now, what do you say we all return to Atlantis and I can get back to taking you for granted and not thanking Aqualad properly for singing a song? Our postpubescent protagonists agree that that sounds just fine. Hooray! And there you have the debut of Aqua Girl. Pretty great! I did not know how much I missed those Bob Haney stories. That was a lot of fun. And I think it was a pretty strong debut for Aqua Girl too. Like I said, I think the character was pretty underutilized, but I really like her personality and the way it comes through in this. I think she makes a really nice foil for Aqua Lad who as much as I love the kid can be a little bit pliant and unassuming, and I think pairing him with A adventurous party girl was a pretty good move, and it's kind of a shame that they didn't do more with her. Although she did keep calling Aqualad lover, and the use of that word is just always gonna creep me out. Unless it is preceded by the word meat or veggie. Also, man, the Nick Carty art in this is just gorgeous. We haven't really seen much of his stuff since the early Teen Titan issues, but... Man, it never fails to impress. So there you have the premiere of our three aquatic teens that we are covering in this special. Pretty good stuff. I hope that, like myself, you appreciated these aquatic teens and their debuts. But does one of these issues deserve more appreciation than the others? Let's look at the tail of the tape and find out. Rick, would you mind singing us in to the Aquatic Teen Appreciation Day minutia? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Cory eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. Our first category for aquatic teen appreciation minutia is sound effects. Which one of these issues had the best noises? In the Aqualad story, the only real sound effect is a whoosh, which is the noise that it makes when the Atlanteans fire their baby torpedo gun to the surface. Which is fine as noises go, but not really groundbreaking. In the Girl debut, we get a few more to choose from. I think the best of them is probably when the 747 crashes into the ocean, it makes a whoosh noise, which is not bad. Pretty good. Pretty good. Strong contender there. But the Namorita debut in Submariner number 50, I think is going to run away with this one. There are some great noises in this. When Namor is fighting the crab monster, the crab monster zaps him with a ray that goes, f which is pretty good. And when he is hitting the lobster men against each other, it makes the noise funk, which is pretty dope. There's also a zblat, a phzut, a pazonk, and a phzzt. So yeah, I gotta say, advantage to this one goes to Namorita. So one point for her. Next up is Sartorially Speaking. Which of these books has the best outfits in it? Of the teens themselves, I think the clear winner is going to be Aqua Girl. I'm obviously a big fan of Aqua Lads Get Up, but I think that Aqua Girl's two-piece gold scale bathing suit that has a mini skirt as part of it is probably the best of these three teens. Namorita is just wearing a orange bikini through most of the issue which is fine but not especially imaginative so if we were just going on the aquatic teens fashion then aqua girl would be the winner but we are going for best fashion to appear in any of these issues and there is no question that that honor goes to the dudes who work in the weather control center in the Crypto the Superdog story. These dudes are wearing yellow bodysuits with brown underpants on the outside and brown lapels and yellow berets that have green lightning bolts on them and also they have green lightning bolts on their chest and it is a great fucking look. And I wish I could find a jumpsuit like that. I don't know that I would wear it out, but I would actually wear it around the house a lot. And that outfit puts Aqualad's debut on the board with one point. Our next category is one that is unique to this special. Most Iconic Dialogue. Which of these aquatic teens had the best single line of dialogue in their debut? For Aqualad, I think we're going to go with... I commanded two of those swordfish that swam by, blocking Aquaman's view of me, to put on the suit that I quickly tore off. What entered the lock were two fish wearing my clothing. So the scene that he is describing there is pretty great, but I gotta say, overall, his dialogue throughout his story is mostly expositional and interesting, but not particularly iconic or character-defined. So I don't think Aqualad's gonna get this one. For Girl, I think I'm going to have to go with Aqualad, dig this scene, an underwater dance spot. Come on, let's rock. Now, it is also largely expositional, but it does help build her character a little bit more. Uh, And also, it's Bob Haney dialogue, and you can tell that from a mile away. And they're going to go rock in that underwater dance club. So... That is definitely a strong contender. Namorita doesn't really get a ton to say in her debut, but the first thing she says when she wakes up and sees that Namor is giving her mouth to mouth is, hey, cut that out, you, you dirty old man. Just who do you think you're mashing? And she punches him in the jaw, which, wow, that is a really good one and really does speak to what her character is. Um, it's a really tough call. I'm going to give a slight edge to Aqua Girl on this one, just because of the Haney dialogue, but man, that is a really tough call. So it looks like things are all tied up heading into our final category, Best panel. Now, these choices are going to be limited to panels in which the premiering character appears. If we weren't, I think there's a pretty good chance it would end up going to one of the panels that the crab monster appears on in Namorita's debut issue. The art in that, as I said, Bill Everett really outdid himself. This category is really, really difficult because these are three of my favorite artists. Nick Carty, Ramona Freyden, and Bill Everett. And I got to say, Bill Everett, I didn't know he was one of my favorite artists until I started reading his Submariner stuff from this era. It is amazing. If you haven't checked it out, you really should. And given the fact that she doesn't appear all that much in this book, it was still kind of hard for me to choose a single Namorita panel because there are two really good ones. There is the initial one where she punches Namor in the jaw, which is great but I think the one that I'm going to go with is the one later on when they are both in the cave and the lobster men have captured her and there is the reveal that she has the pointy ears of an Atlantean. It is just a really beautifully drawn panel and it's great. And she calls Namor a masher again in that panel, which I also appreciated. For the Aqua girl panel, ooh... It's also a tough choice. Uh, I love me some Nick Cardi, and he does a really nice job with this. I think it comes down to two choices for me on this one as well. It's either the premiere of Aqua Girl's new swimsuit outfit, or the one which I think I am going to go with, Aqua Girl and Aqualad go-go dancing on top of a giant drum in an underwater dance club. When I say it aloud, it's ridiculous that there was even a choice. Yeah, that's that's the one that I'm going to go with. And for the Aqualad story, oh boy. There is the panel where he is swimming off in his underpants because he has dressed up two swordfish in his old uniform and let them swim into the city. That is a very strong contender. But I think the one I'm going to have to go with is Aqualad joyously rolling a hoop with a stick because he does not realize that they are made out of eels. He just has such a look of sheer joy on his face to be playing with a hoop and stick, and it's just really, really cute. So just who is the winner of this category and, consequently, the entire made-up contest that I just started? I'll tell you who the winner is. Me, the reader, and hopefully you the listener. Seriously, I can't pick just one of these. And I just decided that I don't have to. Is it a cop-out? Oh yeah, oh definitely, definitely. But after all, isn't copping out and making up new rules about things what Aquatic Teen Appreciation Day is really about? I like to think so. And seeing as I just made up Aquatic Teen Appreciation Day, I just decided I'm right. The winner is Aquatic Teens Everywhere. And I'd like to remind you to keep the spirit of Aquatic Teen Appreciation Day in your heart all year long. Thanks so much for joining us, dear listeners, as we celebrated this dumb holiday that I just made up. And if you see Aqualad or Aqua Girl or Namorita or, heck, Laguna Boy or Lori Lamaris walking around, try to appreciate them. I know I do. If you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so at ttwasteland@gmail.com. If you would like to leave us a review on iTunes, I would certainly appreciate that. We've gotten some nice ones recently, and I really appreciate those. If you would like to donate to the show monetarily, you can do so at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get a bunch of bonus content, including access to the podcast I host with Lisa about Howard the Duck called What the Duck? A podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. And also I've started posting some videos that are reviews of classic comics. So you can check those out there as well. I recently did one about Daredevil number 7, which features Namor and is fucking amazing. The comic book, not my video about it. As for the video, you'll be judging that yourself. We'll be back next week when Corey will have found a regent to replace him on the throne of Atlantis, and I won't have to write three different synopses. So I know I'm looking forward to that, and I'm looking forward to talking to Corey again. We're going to cover Defenders number 47, the continuing adventures of Scorpio. And we'll see you then. In the meantime, happy Aquatic Teen Appreciation Day! Hooray!